ist. You get one, Keith? There you go. How you doing up there? Did you get one? Especially you unmarried young ladies. Get a husband with us. You need one? Oh, you got one. Okay. Here, you get one. We also need to get you a heater out here. The husband list. Hey, man. What's it called? It's called the husband list. Okay. You need one? Good, okay. two right there. Yeah, give one to your brother. Thank you. This should go on the refrigerator um, <clears throat> in place of the honeydew list you've put up there, ladies. This is a much more challenging and rigorous uh, test and challenge for your husbands. And uh, my prayer tonight is that it will be a blessing to all of you as I pull up my slideshow real quick. <clears throat> All right, let's take a moment of a silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God, and we'll open the scriptures tonight uh, after a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, for your wisdom, your kindness, for setting us apart to yourself through your son's work on the cross. For through his work, Father, you delivered us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, this is our glory. It's our standing. It's our eternal destiny. And we don't often consider it. We we take it for granted. And tonight, let us not neglect our so great salvation, but embrace it with all our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. A lot of the words that I'm going to say tonight are on the sheet that I've handed you. Joel, for those that are at home, would like to follow along, get some of the notes. It's um, not the pulpit one, but the other one. Okay. Uh, you could probably get your own rules out of Ephesians five twenty-five through thirty-three, and these are mine that I've uh, considered and thought through. How does this apply to us? And I have to be frank with you: when you get into the nuts and bolts that Paul is getting describing of what it looks like to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. When he talks about the sanctification of the wife and the setting apart of the bride, I've often really struggled with that in terms of thinking through an easy and direct application of this work because there's a sanctifying work that's happening as, as he describes it. And um, what, uh, what, uh, God has given me tonight, and considering this and praying about it, 
is really the substance, the, the nuts and bolts of what we're going to do. Uh, this passage is probably very familiar to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having washed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, or in the Greek, fears her husband. And this is Ephesians 5, 22 through, or 25 through, 23, uh, through 33, which is the um, way a husband is commanded to submit. In Ephesians chapter 5, 21, one of the results of the filling of the Spirit with the Word of Christ, when the Holy Spirit uses the Word that He's inspired in the apostles and prophets in you to transform your thinking, your character, and to guide you and to influence you with the thinking of Christ. And it's always going to be with the Word of Christ. When He's working in you, there are certain results that we should expect that we can observe, like how you speak to one another and how you submit one to another. And... Uh, as we've looked at many times, when he says submit, he doesn't mean that husbands submit to the authority of their wives or that children sub- or, or parents submit to the authority of their children or that slaves or workers would submit to the authority of their bosses. He means that everyone in whatever place you find yourself, you put yourself into a lower position in terms of how you think of yourself and you, you take on the character of Christ who served us and so it's, it's what's been given as a cliche now is servant leadership. But when you have a higher authority, the higher authority becomes the servant of the person's needs that is under that authority. Jesus dons the towel and washes the disciples' feet, as we've mentioned many times in John chapter 13. So we're looking now at a husband who is the head of his wife, as he's developed in 522 through 24. How he submits How does he put himself out? How does he disregard self and self-sacrificially concern himself for her needs, for his wife? And we're calling it tonight the husband list, 17 rules for husbands to internalize and to live out in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's almost a turn of the 20th century English subtitle where you get a long subtitle for a little short title. 17 rules for husbands that we want you to internalize and then to live out in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. My plan tonight is to walk through the passage and then to show you the application as we walk through the passage. To do that, I'm going to have to make one quick adjustment to my slides that is going to take all of about six seconds. Don't count. It's not fair. Whatever. We'll just do it. We'll go with it. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. 
we've, all, we've been telling the wives and telling the wives and telling the wives, you've got to do this. I've been challenged. There's Waterhouse's La Belle Dame Saint Marcy. It's a great, beautiful, romantic painting of a knight who's bewitched by a nymph in the woods, but we'll just call it a, a gentleman and his wife for the purposes of this discussion. A man who is concerned for her and in love with her. Um, I'll show you that picture a little better in a moment. But um, we've really discussed women's responsibilities in marriage a lot. Submission, submit to your husbands. And it's, it's really a ministry where you're doing it for the Lord. And the Lord is the authority, and so you're serving. And sometimes it's, it's harsh, and it's not like it should be, but you do what you do as unto the Lord. And so what I want to draw out, though, as we get 17 rules for husbands tonight, is we start with the wives' responsibilities and see the implications about what that means for us husbands. Because as I've told you, I'm more and more convicted by the wife passages when I'm thinking of my job as a husband. Like she has to put up with this. She has to deal with this. And I'm supposed to step up and be the person described by the Apostle Paul. So the first rule in uh, verse 22, wives to your own husbands be submissive as unto the Lord. Wives to your own husbands be submissive as unto the Lord. The implication in terms of a rule for us gentlemen is that we must provide leadership direction by example so that our wife will have something to submit to. A man must provide headship leadership. We must do this so that there's something to submit to. And this is probably the main complaint. If you took the poll of all the Bible-believing women in American history for the last 200 years, it's probably this is the number one complaint, is there's not a whole lot for me to key off of because of the passive male, because of the the serial abdication of our responsibilities. And young ladies, you need to watch for a couple of key things on this one. And see this guy? And see the Lord of the manor that you've got to serve that thinks you're there to serve him? Is that what he's like? Because that's not what this is talking about. He's not to lord it over you. If you watch a man and you watch how he treats his mother and you watch how he treats other people and see if he's the person that's always waiting for someone else to serve him, There are some character quality flaws in there that need to be addressed, and you're not going to be the one to solve them. Somehow he slipped through the cracks, and mom and dad didn't get that that in there about the humility piece and the serving others piece. And so pass, pass that one by. There's the other side, is that he never has any initiative about anything, and he's just passive and doesn't really think, care, or pretty much do anything. And someone that is is completely passive is not someone you're going to be able to follow. You're going to be frustrated. On the one hand, you're going to end up with the weight of oppression. And on the other hand, you're going to feel oppressed by not being able to follow anything of substance. And men, again, we're convicted. That's why this first rule, men must provide leadership direction by example so that their wives, sorry about my draft notes, their wives will have something to submit to. In verse 23, rule number two, because the husband is the head of the wife. Rule number two, my implication, you have to act as head when you're head. You have to be in charge when you're in charge. The head is not the dictator. I am the head. You never even need to say this. You just need to be the head. You need to act as though you're in the position that God has told you to act in. And that provides... the wife, again, something to key off of in verse 23. The third implication or the third rule from verse 23, and he's the savior of the body. Now, this is where it really gets convicting for me. The husband is to act like Christ. 
He's the Savior. Christ is the Savior of his church, of the body. And so the implication, gentlemen, the third rule, most important so far, you must become her Savior, in quotes. You must become her Savior. I don't mean replacing Jesus. I mean in the pattern of him. And what does that look like? You sacrifice your comforts, your needs, your preferences for her eternal life, for real and ultimate needs, ultimate comforts, and eternal outcomes at the judgment seat of Christ. You might feather your bed and cushion your situation for for now and just, oh, I got to take care of me. And disregarding her eternal comfort and receiving all the inheritance blessings that God has in contingency for our performance when he evaluates us at the judgment seat of Christ. This is what I'm talking about in terms of being her savior. You disregard your comforts. But I wanted to watch the game, but she needs to talk and she needs you to listen to her, and you don't need to preach, but you do need to say the right words, as we'll see in a moment, that will sanctify her. And that needs to happen, and it's more important than, but I had a plan to run around with the guys, or whatever was the plan, whatever you had as your little, your little cookies that you're going for, for your comforts. We need to disregard those things and get on mission. We have a job to do, and see, when you're told you've got... You, you got the keys. It's your business. You run, the, you run the company. When you recognize you're in charge, you stay up late. You get up early. You do what's necessary because it's your business. Jesus Christ is going to call us to account, men, for how we run the business. The fourth, from verse 24, wives should be subject to their own husbands and everything. Wives should be subject to their own husbands and everything in verse 24. For men, the rule must be we be the head all the time. You don't take a break. You don't take a vacation. You take a short break or a long vacation. She's supposed to submit to you in everything. So in everything, you need to be someone worthy of submitting to. So you have to be this example all the time. That's kind of a heavy responsibility, isn't it? I mean, come on. I got to get some me time. I need to decompress. You need to have all that stuff that you need for you, like going to the gym or taking a run or going for a walk as we get older. (laughs) You need to incorporate that into your scheme for being the head. You see, because not only, let me give you just a mundane example of the needs of this life. We have these things called bodies and they're breaking. They're fearfully and wonderfully made, but they're sinfully corrupted and they're breaking. And so you, you minimize the decline and the breakage by exercise and proper nutrition. Take care of your own physical body, gentlemen, providing an example for her to take care of her physical body. Because she says, well, you're doing what you need to do with your body. So she says, well, I need to take care of my body too, just by example. Not Not by a rough challenge. Oh, you need to go work out, sweetheart. None of that. It's just, I've got to do this. Hey, do you want to do this with me? And then you have to provide opportunities. It can be a real challenge to actually stop working on whatever the work is and say, we need to do some maintenance on the physical plant because the physical plant is going to not do as well over time. You have to keep investing in your nutrition and your fitness. It's just an everyday example. I learned a long time ago, it's just basic life the exercise profits the body a little, says the Apostle Paul. I learned this early on that personally, the way my life works, the way my brain is, is wired, if I get some sort of in, intensive cardio thing every couple of days, I have a fairly even leveled out kind of life. And if I don't, if I don't get my heart rate over 140 or 150, 
for, for about 20 minutes at a time every other day or every three days at least, then my uh, chemistry goes bad. And I think that's how I'm made. I think we're made to work. And so uh, maybe your wife's that way, guys. Maybe she needs to take care of that. And so now that's not a spiritual issue, but it does contribute to the spiritual life because I feel good. I'm able to serve better. I feel bad. I feel lousy. I'm all drained and, and worn out. It's hard. It's, it's drudgery. And that's just one example. Uh, how you sleep while we're taking care of the physical plant, making sure that there is a, a right time to sleep and that we're taking care of that sleep. Now, the Proverbs 31 woman goes to bed late and she gets up early and all that. But, but actually, men, if we will consider our wives that she needs sleep and we need to protect that and we need to provide for that, especially when there's young kids at home. <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of us have that situation. And uh, as Jim Gaffigan said, you know, it's, it's almost like women are going to take care of the babies and the men are just totally oblivious to all that. So we, what, what's going on? Are you having another baby? Hey, could, could you be quiet? I'm trying to get tight 12 hours sleep here. You know, like it's silliness, but, but that, that's a lot of times how it goes. And so thinking in terms of their needs is really the, the name of the game. But in uh, point number four, rule number four, I'm saying be the head all the time. Stop, stop taking breaks and vacations from responsibility so that you can set the tone and provide direction through your words that are backed up by exemplary deeds. Words backed up by exemplary deeds. That's the implications. Now let's get into the commands to the husband. Let's, let's yell at our husbands, at ourselves, gentlemen. There is a little tighter picture of that. La belle dame sans merci uh, by, uh, I think... It, I forget the first name, but Waterhouse, a romantic painter who did a lot of this theme. And um, if you like romantic art, that's kind of realist, but it's got that romantic kind of idealism to it. He was one of the greats in England. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.25 kicks us off with the summary command. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself and I'm translating that, gave himself for her as a substitute for her. That's a substitutionary atonement reference. So if you're cataloging all the places where the Bible says Jesus died not to provide a ransom to Satan or to show that he's the victor or to uh, demonstrate his, his government or some other, he died to satisfy the wrath of God that abides on sin. And that's in our place. We t- he who knew no sin became sin for us. I think that's what he's saying with this construction as a substitute for her, this hooper plus the genitive of Altes. But anyway, husbands love your wives. And so my f- fifth rule, while we're putting the honeydew list up on the refrigerator, because the, um, my fifth rule, because the husband is, oh, wait, wait, I, I skipped. I've got a fifth rule that's from verse 23, because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. I'm sorry, the fifth rule. Got to follow the notes. <laughs> See what happens when you follow the notes. Um, the implication of Christ being the exemplar and the husband being following that example for Jesus, so he's an example for his wife, you have to constantly take Christ as your example. You have to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, gentlemen. That's the most important rule, isn't it? You have to keep your eyes on Jesus so that you'll know he's my exemplar, so that you'll know how you should live toward your wife as a self-sacrificial agent for her sanctification. To be spirit-filled husbands, we must be in the word in a significant, 
life-changing, thought-directing, soul-convicting way every day. I like how that sounds. I'm going to say that again. To be spirit-filled husbands, we must be in the Word, that's in the Word of God, in a significant, life-changing, thought-directing, soul-convicting way every day. I want, to, I want to say that if you're reading our daily bread for today and you check it off, we're not doing what I'm talking about here. It's a great start. It might get your thoughts oriented. It's a good thing, way to wake up in the morning or something, but that's not really going to be the depth and the time com- com- commitment that we kind of need to have to have an attention on the Lord Jesus. That's my opinion. And it also arises from my personal experience. But, uh, but that's the spirit-filled thing is the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. That's what he's influencing you with that content. So we need to have a radical, I think, engagement with the word every day. Now, to the husbands. Oh, I'm, still, I'm still talking about uh, the implication of verse 24. Uh, n- number six, but just as the church is submitted to Christ, so also wives, their husbands, and everything, this is awful. This is awful when you think about a husband that misses this responsibility. So this, there's an implication here for us, gentlemen. As the church is submitted to Christ, so also wives, their husbands, and everything, this, the implication, have some compassion on your wife, for she's been given a terribly odious task when you're not walking as you should walk. When you don't live the life you're called to live and she's called to submit to you, that is tough. That is rough sledding for her. And we need to have some compassion about that and default to compassion about that. And that's 1 Peter 3, 7. That's living with your wife in an understanding way. Have some compassion on your wife. See, ladies, that's why you want to put this on the fridge. Right there. That's the rule. Pastor Dave said it. He got it from the implication of verse 24. And that's your first bullet in your sermon, ladies. And your second bullet is, I'm not supposed to be preaching to you, am I? Sorry. And the third bullet is, could you understand why I think this applies? Just think about it. I just need some help here for you to understand. And uh, gentlemen, if you will commit to uh, listening to the help meet God's given you instead of being a fool, a total idiot, and ignoring the help that God has provided you and listen, listen to what she has to say so that you can understand what she's saying and make an evaluation and think it through and not rush to judgment think it's really going to help you. God designed uh, that arrangement that way. All right, let's get into 525. Husbands, love your wives. The seventh rule I propose, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her. This is the primary summary command, love your wife in the pattern and power of Jesus Christ. Love your wife in the power and the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in his humanity, Jesus executed the mission that he executed in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that from, for example, Matthew chapter 4. The Lord was led into the spirit, led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. We know uh, that when Jesus cast demons out and they said, you're casting out demons in the power of Satan, that the Lord Jesus said, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I was doing it in the power of the third person of the Trinity. So uh, many times Jesus seems to do things in his own deity, in his own godness, but the summary statement of what Jesus and his humanity is doing is he's pioneering our faith. He's walking by the Spirit. And so the pattern is self-sacrificially. The power is the Holy Spirit. And that's why this is Spirit-filled marriage. That's why it's following from be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. This is all one one long discussion of consequences of the filling of the Spirit with the Word of Christ. 
And this makes sense, doesn't it? We can all imagine this. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've heard about this. But a man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and so really pays attention to his word and is conscientious about living out what God has said and, and, and humble enough to see where he fails, that kind of man is a gentle and a kind and a considerate husband in general. And he has his slip-ups and he has his, his, his flaws and he fails from time to time. But you can see in general, this is a man who is seeking to get it right and generally does because the Spirit continues to pour out his grace on him. Rule number eight, still in Ephesians 5.25, and he gave himself as a substitute for her. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to show you is these are applications, these little rules are app ways of applying what's being said in the pattern. So he says, and he gave himself as a substitute for her. The love that we give our wives must be selfless. The selfless use of self. I'm seeing myself now as the, as someone who will be used by my own agency, my own choice to meet the need. I'm not looking at my own needs. I am selflessly projecting myself into the gap, into what does she need? That's Jesus going to the cross. He produces this salvation work in his love for us by giving himself. So it's the use of self. It's the selfless use of self to save or provide the ultimate needs of the wife. And, th- and that is the most important thing to ask is what does she really need? Well, she wants me to move to Detroit to be close to her sister. Hopefully nobody's dealing with that just as random as I could possibly get. She wants me to move to Detroit, be closer to her sister. If anybody is in, under pressure to move to Detroit because your wife wants to be closer to her sister, that's weird. But anyway, uh, no Ouija boards here, um, and I'm not speaking in tongues. So. But, but here's what I'm saying. You don't necessarily need to move to Detroit because she wants that. Maybe she wants to destroy herself. Maybe she wants something she shouldn't want. Don't you ever want something you shouldn't want? So I'm not saying you become the slave of your wife and her whim. We see that from time to time. Men are just little waiters. Like, what can I get you next, dear? Whipping boys for their wives. The little queen of hearts. And they're running around as a, as a, 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 a deuce of clubs or something. Whatever you, what do you, whatever you say, dear. Whatever you say, dear. Whatever you say, dear. Niles Olson, yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Right? And people watching you if you're like that, people that watch such a person, they see it very clearly. Oh my goodness, what a henpeck, tragic person that is. Niles can't see it. He's just busy. I just, I don't know why I don't ever have any time for anything. Because he's running around doing whatever his wife wants or says, but he's not thinking as a head, what does she need? What is the need for the household? Let me give you an example. You know, we all need to be industrious and labor, laborious. We need to work. Some people have a very lazy streak directly applied to labor. They don't want to work. Everybody's lazy, understand. Some people don't like to read. Some people don't like to read the Word. Some people don't like to pray. Some people don't like to deal with other people, but they would love to work all day. Okay, I'm just saying laziness shows up in many places. Let's just say there's a lady that doesn't want to work, and she struggles with it if she even pays any attention. She gets a husband with sugar daddy who provides all her needs, and she never has to do any labor. And so her life is all this... uh, it's, it's one soap opera to another. How many marshmallows can I eat before I feel like it's too much sugar? You know, and uh, wash that down with some water and then start over. You know, it's crazy. But let's, let's say that there's, there's such a person that has that struggle in their sin nature that they're just lazy. Well, her husband doesn't need to feed her marshmallows. Amen. 
He needs to think about what she needs. She needs to learn to work. And he needs to try to facilitate that. And I, I promise it's not by starting with, the problem with you, dear, is you're lazy. And I'm here to help you with that. Let me show you my painting from Waterhouse about the knight who shows up to save his wife from her worst trouble. And I'm going to solve your problem of laziness. Let's get to work. That's not going to be the way it works, but he's going to have to become an agent for her sanctification in this, her, her weakness. You're right? And all the ladies in the church are like, oh, he can't be talking about me. And I certainly am not. I'm picking a silly example because I uh, value my life. Okay. <laughs> Number nine. Number nine is from verse 26. I need to review what I'm saying in number, number eight. What I'm talking about in terms of saving your wife in the pattern of Christ is that you think about her needs and that your love is a self-sacrifice. It's, a, it's all in, whatever it takes, so that she gets her needs. What, what's the ultimate need our wives have? Some, of, some, some people you might know have married unbelievers. What does that wife need? What does she need more than anything else in the world? A recumbent bike in the basement. No, no, no. What does she need more than anything else in the world? She needs a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't force that, but you need to be on mission for that. Might mostly be about prayer. It's an intensive ministry of prayer. It's a welcome, it's, it's reading. How do we do this? Reading some about conversational evangelism. It's thinking through. It's becoming very adept at the conversation so that you're ready, so that you're equipped, so that you can be involved in this. It's showing her in a general way that you love her and sacrificing for her comforts, for her needs in a, in a physical sense so that you make the case for the bigger issue, but it's really about the gospel. What's a, what's a Christian wife need? What's her ultimate need? What's really going to happen, whether she is rich or poor, lives in a double wide or in a tent uh, like, like the princess Sarah lived, Abraham's wife, or, or, uh, or if she lives in a mansion or if she lives... Uh, somewhere in between. What does she really need? Jerry Clower used to brag about his wife that mama, he would talk about feminists and how they said, I'm, I'm here to liberate all these women. And he would gripe about feminism. And this was a Southern humorist in the country circuit back in the, back in the 70s and 80s. And he said that the women's libbers uh, don't want to mess with mama's arrangement. He said, mama's got, she's got it good. Because once I started making some money in entertainment, uh, mama got where she could watch TV in any room of the house. This was a big deal back in the 80s. Mama could, uh, she just had to get up in the morning to let in the lady I had hired to come wait on her, and then she could decide if she wanted to have breakfast at the table or breakfast in bed. Women's libbers didn't need to come in and liberate Mama because she had a good arrangement. That was his uh, little shtick he said about his wife, uh, Jerry Clower, which I commend pretty much everything he ever said. It's really funny, and some of it's very edifying. But, um, but it doesn't matter what, what the physical provision for our wives is, ultimately, when you start thinking about the fact that a billion years is going to be a drop in the eternal bucket of your eternal existence. If you look at the big picture of what your wife needs, don't be like, oh yeah, she needs the word. Think about it. She needs to live her life every moment in a, in a prayerful stance of, 
of praying without ceasing, of, of rapport with God, and a, a daily intensive moment with the Word of God where she's feeding spiritually so that she can grow spiritually. And then not just feeding on the Word, but carrying it through, living it out in terms of God's wisdom so that she's making wise choices that are the worship choices that honor God. Because those are the things that when you put that spiritual life together and you look at the judgment seat of Christ, that's what's going to come up. It's not going to be, did you enjoy the house your husband had you living in? It's going to be, did you, did you participate in my mission? Did you walk by the spirit that I, that I gave you? Did you live out this commission that I gave you to be the body of Christ, to carry out the great commission? Were you on mission? And did you live the life that I wanted you to live? And the extent that you did, there's the reward. And the extent that you didn't, there's the loss of those rewards that he had laid up for you. And that's the burning. That's the 1 Corinthians 3 burning of the bonfire of the vanities. All that wasted life, all that wasted energy that was, well, we were busy, but we weren't busy for the Lord. That's the consideration that every Christian needs to make. And as a husband for a Christian wife, you have an intensive opportunity to lead and save her in this sense. So I want to say that's the most important application of loving your wife is considering her eternal outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 26, so the reason, you, uh, the reason Christ gave himself as a substitute in verse 25 is so that in verse 26, he might sanctify her by cleansing her through the washing of water with the word. Now I've said before, I do want you to, as you read through, I do not personally think in my interpretation of this, my understanding of what Paul is saying, he's not tell, telling you that Jesus water baptized the, the, the church. I don't think that's what he's referring to. I think this is a way of saying washing of water is the best washing you're going to get. You're going to get clean by the washing of water. And the way he cleans you is with the word. Cleansing through the washing of water is what God does with us with the word. And that's why the instrumental use of with the word. That's my understanding of verse 26. But notice what it is. It's communication. He wanted to sanctify his bride through communication. Husbands, wives, Christ, church. That's the illustration that's being set up. So when he went as the husband to save the church, it's with communication that he sanctifies her. Notice that this begins for us with the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So this is where I start to learn new information that I hadn't thought of quite this way before. This is new for me. Can't spell cleansing, but... Uh, I did it correctly, number 10. Number nine, so that he might sanctify her. The ninth rule, the love of a man for his wife has a purpose, an end state in mind. This love is a means to an end. I got that from the connection between 25 and 26. He sacrificed himself so that he might sanctify her. So our love is not this thing, that it's this altar that we bow down to. That, oh, I've got this love. Love is, is a means to the ultimate end. And number 10 by cleansing her through the washing of water with the word, the love of a man for his wife has a method, a sanctifying communication. You want her to be sanctified. In this instance, he's saying set apart to himself. The, the, the husband sets apart his wife to himself. In every wedding ceremony, the pastor says, are you going to forsake all others and only have her for yourself? Are you only going to sanctify this person and no one else? That, that's what sanctify means. It means set apart. 
Sanctify holy, these are all saint, these all mean set apart. Are you going to set this person apart to yourself? Jesus does this for us in a spiritual sense. I think that the illustration is being used just as Jesus does this for us spiritually. We're doing this for our wives. We want men, our wives, only for ourselves and as wife. And there's this, there's this blessed, not overbearing, but blessed possessiveness. She's not an object you possess, but you are one another's by virtue of that union in marriage. And that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7. So the, the love of a man for his wife has a method of sanctifying communication. Just as Christ's word cleans us and draws us nearer to himself, that's what sanctification is. So a husband must communicate with his wife in a way that does not defile her, but cleans her and draws her nearer to himself. And so when you connect it to your spiritual life, it is about the things of God, but it's not preaching. Of course, I'm not talking about preaching. I'm talking about men. We need to provide communication to our wives that cleans them, that doesn't defile them, that sets them apart to us, that we love them, we want them, we are thankful for them. We need to honor them. Our children should rise up and call them blessed. This is the idea of the glory that God has given us in womanhood and our willing glorification of it for him, for his sake. And so this is where you get into the nuts and bolts of a relationship. It all depends on communication. The way Jesus talks to the church, it sanctifies us, it raises us spiritually, and it makes us able to function, to grow spiritually, and as a mature believer, to work in the works as mature, as he's prepared for us. So this, this communication matures your relationship and your marriage. Communicating and, and keeping it righteous and holy. I think that's the picture that he's painting, and so it kind of blends. You have a spiritual leadership thing that's happening but again it's not i'm not saying you're, you've got to become um you know right you're not preaching sermons uh even i you might be surprised by this as a pastor i teach all the time but i've never said okay sit down open your bible and uh here's the note sheet for our discussion tonight dear it doesn't work that way because that's not that's not the communication that he's talking about but notice that um a lot of times women ladies you want to know what's going on, what's going on in your head. You, maybe you don't think about it, but yeah, that'd be nice. I mean, it'd be nice if we could actually talk, if we could communicate. That's something you have to take time to do. But when you do it, the way Jesus shows us with the church, when you do it, it makes us close. It causes us to be set apart to one another. We invest that time and that energy and God blesses it. Maybe sometimes uh, we don't do this because, well, we've had enough conversation to know I don't really want to hear anything else he has to say. Well, that's going to be hard for you because he's being told to do that here, to set his wife apart to himself with his sanctifying communication. By cleansing, number 11, by cleansing, this implies that a husband must continually sanctify himself so that his spirit-filled communication does its work. Maybe men, they don't want to hear what you have to say because you don't have anything from God to say. Because your words aren't clean, because you're not sanctified in your thoughts and your spiritual life. And so this could end up turning a whole new corner in your marriage. Because all of a sudden, oh, as the head, I'm supposed to set her apart with how I talk to her. And this is all the result of the filling of the Spirit ought to be speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I ought to have the soundtrack going on, singing, making melody in my heart to the Lord. I should be giving thanks at all times to the Father 
in the name of the Son for all things, and I should be submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. And you know, sometimes you, man, she's dealing with something that's really hard for her, and you need to say something very simple like, well, what is the worship choice to make in this case? What is God's desire for us based on what he's shown us, for example, in terms of love? You're dealing with this problem with this person uh, at work. How does the love of Jesus Christ look in this situation? That is the intended start of a conversation where uh, if, if we've done our work, if we've got the rapport where it needs to be, we can actually have that conversation. For most marriages, you, you ask that question, all of a sudden, well, what? what do you want me to do? I mean, all of a sudden it's a, it's a recrimination. I'm criticizing you. It, it gets taken the wrong way because we don't have the, the context where, Hey, no, I, I know you're struggling and I'm struggling. We're supposed to be sanctifying each other as we show each other our plank and our speck in our eyes. And we're supposed to be helping each other with this. And, and this seems to be the worship choice. What do you think? And when you have the context for that conversation, you can see how a husband and wife can sanctify one another with their speech. But number 11 was the husband has to constantly be sanctifying himself, as it were, by going to God, by going in prayer, but cleaning up at the labor through confession of personal sin when it becomes a problem, by walking by the Spirit, by taking time with the Word. The idea of a family Bible study where the man has not spent time in the word beforehand in preparation, knowing anything at all to say is a, is a, it's a, it's not doing our job. It takes time. It takes an investment. It's hard, but uh, nothing worth having isn't hard. And you do this right every day. You have a lifetime of awesome. You've missed the, you drop the ball every day and you're a strikeout. You're, you're, you're not even. You're not even welcome in the the minor leagues. Number 12, verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself glorious, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she would be holy and blameless. So what I'm getting out of verse 27, they might present the church to himself. The goal of this cleansing and sanctification is the union of the marriage. I want to talk about having a good marriage. This is a husband's opportunity to love his wife with how he talks to her for her own sanctification, for the communication channels to be open, to be uh, uh, properly calibrated where we're not defiling our wives with our speech. Again, where we're lifting them up with what we say and how we speak. The cleansing and sanctification results in the union of the marriage. The husband must want the wife for himself. And this is a very convicting question to ask any man that's been married for any period of time. Do you want her to be in a close rapport with you? Do you want to have this open communication, this beautiful picture that Jesus paints by sacrificing himself for the church to present her to himself? Do you want her? Because that's what you're supposed to want. And I think that we can command want. You can command what you're supposed to want. Peter says, long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby longs for his mother's milk. You can actually change. Well, we've grown apart and I don't really want that anymore. Well, grow back together and want it again. Make a choice. Well, we've grown apart. I mean, the the picture people do when things run their course, we've changed. What you're saying is that we were here and then we did this, but now it's in stone. We looked at Medusa and we can't change. We're in stone. We've, We've frozen and it's just this way. Yes, other people are now welcome to have other things, but, but this is going to be this way. 
And that's stupid. Actually, let's look at the, the scriptures and smarten up a little bit. It says, do this. And so you need to want your wife. Lord, I'm having trouble with that. I know men, I'm not personally, but I know, I know men that'll say I'm having trouble with that. Okay, that's your prayer right there. God, this is, I'm really struggling with rule number 12. I don't want her. But clearly Jesus wants you. You're way more disgusting to his righteousness than whatever has happened between you and your, your spouse and, and their transgression of your character. So that's the, that's the rationale for forgiveness. God's forgiven you a lot. You can forgive someone else a little. Glorious. Present her glorious, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Number 13, the husband sanctifying communication is the necessary maintenance for maximum glory and soul beauty for a spirit-filled man's wife. She needs you. If, if we're going to follow this illustration of Christ in the church closely, which I'm trying to do here, a wife, a Christian wife, needs her husband to communicate so that she is refreshed. There's a refreshment that happens so that you are bringing out that beauty, that glory. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, glory is a beautiful thought. The glory of a human being is always a reflected glory, like the moon reflects the sun's light. We reflect God's glory. My illustration of this is the mirror. Y- y- the best we can hope for, we all want to be generators of our own glory and, and produce light ourselves, but we don't. We're not made that way. God is the glory, and we will either reflect his light well or poorly. And so God, in sanctifying us, is constantly, constantly with, with sometimes with really heavy grit, sandpaper and sometimes with some really fine grit stuff he's sanding us down as a mirror to make us more and more reflective of that glory and that's some pretty bright light that he shines and when we reflect it back very dully we're like wow we've got a lot of smoothing that has to happen for us to look like our savior and that's the process of sanctification he's smoothing you he's grinding that grit that that deflection of his glory down so that you're a smooth surface that shines that glory out and then people say what's different about you you know well you, you, i'm i'm a work in progress and uh, some of you are in the um in the 40 grit sandpaper stage and it's really rough and everybody's got their goggles on and other people the lord's got a can of brasso and he's He's working, he's wet sanding you down and, um, and everybody's in a different place. And interestingly, uh, the, the mirror illustration kind of breaks down because sometimes you get pretty rough and, and you need to go back to some 40 grit. <laughs> I was already to Brasso and he's working on me again with 40 grit and it happens. But my, my point here is that in bringing this glory out uh, for your wife, it's gonna be partly through your communication. It's gonna be your communication uh, from what the spirit is filling you with as you're a spirit-filled husband. It's the necessary maintenance of maximum glory and soul beauty for a spirit-filled man's wife. Uh, we talk about maintenance. I use that word on purpose. Oh, my wife, she's not high maintenance. She's low maintenance. Oh, you, you don't know my wife. She's high maintenance. Well, there's some wisdom in that language that people use, meaning she needs more attention than less attention. But the truth is that we all probably need attention. We just need it in different ways. And uh, we all need boundaries, and we all chafe at boundaries. And so 
I think the maintenance being described here um, is, uh, is that the Lord, when he talks to his church, we get clean and we're holy and blameless and presented in fellowship and just like we should be, and that's the sanctifying process. There's an analogy here for husbands with their wives with how you communicate, and it's a tight analogy because husbands, you are driving her, I should say directing her to Christ with your, um, with your self-sacrificial loving communication. Number 14, verse 28. <clears throat> husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. A husband's motivation for his sanctifying, self-sacrificial communication keeps a wife clean and glorious is that she is his own flesh. He is, in this part, it becomes kind of self-serving because we're one flesh. So when I take care of her, I'm really taking care of myself. He gets into that discussion about marriage. There's no other relationship where you love self-sacrificially that you could say you're one flesh. But here you get kind of a, a resonating benefit that you didn't think about because you're loving your wife self-sacrificially, you end up blessing yourself, one flesh. It's the one flesh discussion. So what I'm saying by way of application, a husband's motivation for the sanctifying self-sacrificial communication that keeps his wife clean and glorious is that she is his own flesh. It's a great motivation. Again, do you want your wife or are you walking around pretending like you, half of you isn't part of you? right? Do you want her? And do you make that choice to want her? And, and so making that choice, will you self-sacrifice in how you speak to her, how you take the time for that? Some of you are really challenged by this because I don't really have much to say. Spend some time in the Word. Then spend some time listening to her. And then you'll have something to say that puts the two together. And it may be that's awful that you have to put up with that that's really hard i can imagine what that must be like that might need to be what you need to say when she's telling you what's going on with something that she's really struggling with and and it may be that your communication patterns are so broken in your marriage many are probably most after enough time in marriage it may be that your communications are so broken that she doesn't even trust you to tell you what's going on that she's struggling with because she's so afraid you're going to mouse trap her and say well you shouldn't worry about that and you're not dealing with her as a woman when you do that. That's a violation of 1 Peter 3, 7. Number 15, we're going to close this, this list down. Verses 19, or 29 and 30, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as also the Lord the church, because we are members of his body. The majority of manuscripts say from his flesh and from his bones. Just like Adam says in the garden, thus is last my flesh and my bones when he sees the woman. My application here in, in the 15th rule is the one flesh union should be a constant most motivational factor for our self-sacrificial love. It's this constant motivational factor specifically in how we communicate. It's a restatement of number 14. But notice it's the communication is self-sacrificial, but it ends up being self-beneficial and I'm motivated because we're one flesh. If you hit your foot, if you stub your toe or drop something, let's stop stubbing our toes and talk about dropping something heavy on it. <laughs> That's worse. That's worse. I once, um, I once in my neighborhood, we had these uh, rain gutters and they, and they were concrete uh, along the sidewalk. There'd be this concrete cutout for this big rain gutter that led down into this creek system. It was a great neighborhood to grow up in. But um, on the top of that was a large manhole cover 
um, that you could, a person could slide down into, and you could actually get your finger in and pull them up if you were strong, and they had to be probably about 40 pounds, maybe more. Uh, if I go back now, it'd probably be 25 pounds, but I was a little kid, I thought it was really heavy. But um, it was really heavy one day when I was holding one, and um, a, a kid down the street uh, did something while I was burdened with the weight of this thing I shouldn't have been touching, and, um, and I dropped it in reaction to what he was doing on my uh, great toe, um, not bragging, it's just what you call it, the great toe on my right foot. <laughs> and um, uh, no, I didn't hit any other toes. And it was the edge of it. And you can think of it like, like a big, like a dime, like a, like a coin falling just on the edge of, of your toe. And um, that hurt. I didn't know how bad it hurt. You know, when you hit something so bad that it kind of feels numb at first and you're like, oh, this is going to be bad. And then, and then your brain starts talking and then you're like, oh, it's really bad. And you get it home and, you know, there's this well of blood that's, that's, that's built up under the nail and you have to pop that. You have to drill a hole in the bottom of the nail to let the pressure out because it hurts so bad. So the best thing you could do is put a hole in your toenail down to the quick. I mean, that's really bad when that's the best thing you can do. And so usually with a hot needle and you've all been there, right? Oh, no, just me. Okay. Well, anyway, I knew there was a reason I did this at 12 or 10 or 12 years old. I was supposed to tell you about dropping manhole cover on my toe. It really hurts. You know what I did as soon as I could? I took care of my toe. Know why? It's my toe. Because it was telling me to. It hurt and I had to fix it because it's my toe. Now, ladies, you're much more important than your husband's toe, but the illustration is <laughs> that if she's hurting or if she's in need of anything, you are in need of something, and that's the closeness, the one flesh portrait of marriage. This also answered the question I had, well, Jesus' new commandment is love one another as I've loved you. That's more than as, I, as yourself. Well, he's now talking about the one flesh union, so when you take care of your wife, you are, in that sense, taking care of yourself. The one flesh union should be a constant motivational factor. It should be constantly motivating us to love self-sacrificially, specifically in how we communicate to our wives. That's the big topic, the big, the big key to how to love your wives for this Valentine's Day, gentlemen, and for the rest of your lives, is to love her by how you communicate. Well, I don't want to talk to her. It will be a self-sacrifice in that case. I don't really know what to say. Spend a little time thinking about it. I don't have a lot of time. Take the time. Well, I've got important things to do. It's not as important as this. See, it's all about our scale of values. And this is what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the Apostle Paul. If we're going to be spirit-filled husbands, we're going to love our wives self-sacrificially by communicating with them. In verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother. This is Moses in Genesis 2.24. He will be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. My rule is men must preserve the sanctity of their marriage union by separating from any outside influence that threatens the union of one flesh. There is no greater relationship in life than fathers and their children, parents and their children, except for husbands and wives. And so when you say you're separating from father and mother and you're sanctifying her by becoming one flesh, just us, as I like to say, starting a new country of just two that'll eventually be three, four, how many God, children God gives you. This new country has to, it has a border. It's got a wall, build a wall. 
Okay, that's what verse uh, 20, verse uh, 31 is saying. Build the wall. You have to sanctify this thing and there can't be any, be any outside influences that would, would, would rend this union, the one flesh thing. So mother-in-law cannot prey upon daughter-in-law. You can't have that. You've got to build the wall. You have to protect that. And so you separate for that necessary connection for that union. And it's fine. Now, now, what does that look like? I've seen people try to be legalistic really about this and make up a new rule. Well, this means that you've got to leave town. This means that you've got to uh, live uh, in another neighborhood at least. This means that we can't take emails or what... What this means, I mean, in, in this culture, understand the people that first read uh, Genesis 2.24, as Moses uh, rendered it, were Exodus generation people in the, in the wilderness. When someone got married, you added on to dad's tent. Okay, I mean, of course, you're building the family business. That's how it was. That what dad did, we do. We build the business. And you become apprentice and so forth and become uh, uh, the next generation. So you can imagine how that could, another couple of people doing the same work ends up being a bigger business. And so it's, it's all part of household, but there's a new household of this marriage. And what he's saying is even as you add a a room onto your father's tent, you better separate from your father's household sufficiently to be one flesh. And there's no distraction, no, no interference with that. And so some of you are like, yes, that's what we got to have. Actually, everybody probably has experiences where this, this is something that is wisdom. We need to protect the new marriage from any outside influences, even our parents. You honor your father and mother. And one way you do that is obey the word of God. And in this case, the word of God is saying you need to separate from any influences, including those parents you're honoring, if it, if it takes away from one flesh. And you need to get those healthy boundaries. And you, you know who needs to preach this the most? Parents of newly married children. The in-laws need to be saying, hey, watch closely Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5.31. This is something that needs to be protected. You got to stand up and do this. This is, the, this is the parent birds kicking the baby birds out. Not necessarily your house. I'm just saying you need to, you need to be saying this is... This is, and what I see very often is parents, they miss this and they're like, oh, I still want little Junior. Junior's still my baby. She's not good enough for him. But Junior, he's my baby. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's his wife. They're one flesh. You need to honor that. Okay, okay, well, yeah, yeah. But he's still, still my baby. And the more she's like that, the more we've got to build a wall, put a moat, put alligators in the moat to protect one, one flesh. That's the principle of Scripture, and um, I think that's a great rule to adopt. Now, I don't think it means that you uh, cut off relationships unless you have to, because we've got our first priority here of one flesh. 31, or 32, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and about the church. This is our 17th rule. 17th rule, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Let's apply it. Christian husbands are responsible for bearing witness for Christ to the world by how they love their wives self-sacrificially. Paul says, by doing this big, this is about Jesus and the church, nevertheless, husbands to love his wife, wife to your husband. When he, when he reemphasizes this, it really puts a heavy burden on us men for how we live as Christ-like husbands. 
It means that now we're bearing witness for Jesus Christ with how we treat our wives and the pattern that Jesus treats the church. Neglect this duty, and therefore we would be denying the cross. Neglect this duty and deny the cross. This, see, I, I, I know it's, it's nice to say, well, the spiritual stuff is Jesus and the church, and then this is marriage stuff. But you really can't do that with this because there's a bleed over. Because you're spirit-filled Christians in this Christian marriage, representing Christ and loving in the power of Christ. And so um, this is a fantastic responsibility. And all of a sudden, our marriage duties, like we read in Titus 2 about women, it's not just about you. Wives, uh, older women help the younger women love their husbands and be workers at home. So that what? So the word of God isn't blasphemed. Your spiritual life is tied directly to your marriage. It's tied directly to your witness. It's all one one thing with many different aspects and facets, and it can be a real challenge. I know all of you are challenged in various ways in your lives. Everyone has the struggle that you're dealing with. I know you are. And I know that God has you perfectly calibrated and and equipped for the test that you're facing. And if you feel like you don't have enough gas to get over the hill, go get some more gas. Stop, get in the Word, spend some time, talk to Him in prayer, say, God, I I don't know what I need to do here. He'll tell you. He's, He's working with you. He's got a plan for you, and part of it is the struggle that you're facing in whatever relationship struggles you're facing. I know you are, because I look at all these people with your breathing in and out, and you're blinking your eyes, demonstrating actual physical life. And so I know you're struggling with people relationships. It's just how we are, and the more we go, the, the, the bigger these things are going to become a challenge for us, because the more we have of the Word, and God putting us to the test. I want to close tonight with what Peter challenges us with in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. We've been all with Paul tonight. He wishes you could be as he is, unmarried, possibly a widower, possibly never having been married. Peter, though, who was not at all a pope, did have a wife. And Paul says, am I the only one that isn't allowed to have a wife? Like, like Peter has a wife, he, he drags her around, literally. That's what it says in Greek, he drags her around. It doesn't literally drag her around, it's just what it says in Greek. Uh, he leads his wife around from, from wherever he travels in ministry. Do I not get to have a wife? Do I have to be? And, and what he's saying is, of course, I, I have the right to be married, but I, I don't take that right because I'm serving the Lord in the high travel, high adventure ministry. It's hard to have a, a wife as you're getting shipwrecked, you know, and, and going through that with like, like hey, honey, it, it was worth it for the time we had. We're all going to die. You know, you, 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 sometimes you have to take a, have a sacrifice for, for ministry, I mean, always, and sometimes it's marriage. But anyway, uh, Peter, who is married, is my point, knows exactly the struggles we have from his own experience. And he says in verse 7, after telling wives not to, not to preach at their husbands, to win them over without a word, if they don't obey the word, just win them over without a word by, the, by showing your chaste and respectful behavior, and you don't do, you, 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 you be a daughter of Sarah, and you don't have any fear, but you trust the Lord that he's going to protect you, and you just serve the Lord, and you wait for him to do the work on your husband, okay? Just as verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And, and when, when you tell a woman who wants a divorce to go read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, she inevitably says you're abusive uh, church. But that's what, th- this is the answer for a husband that won't obey the word. But, but that's Nabal. That's Abigail and Nabal. It's a tragic situation. We've all, we all know instances of this happening. 
thankfully it's not something that I'm looking at here, but it's, it's, we all know instances of this happening. We all say, Oh, if she'll just keep her, keep her duty and focus and do what she does unto the Lord, she's got a lot of reward coming. She has a wonderful testimony for the Lord, but boy, what a hard hill she has to climb. Well, verse seven lightens all of our loads, lightens all of your loads, ladies, in terms of what your husbands are supposed to think and do. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman. Now, today's, today's feminism says this is a, 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 a chauvinistic verse that destroys the power of womanhood interchangeability with manhood. Well, it does tell us that women are not interchangeable with men. You're not the same. We're not the same. We're made differently. Thank God we're made differently. Guess what the Bible says, what we all already know. I um, want to preach a whole sermon on this, but as with the someone weaker since she's a woman, and then here's what you're to do. You live with her in an understanding way that she's different and therefore weaker, and it has to do with how you treat her, and it's largely about communication. You don't speak harshly to a woman. You speak gently to a woman. You don't mince words necessarily, but you, but you have to treat her differently than you would treat yourself or your buddies at work. That's what he's saying. Show her honor as a fellow heir, one to inherit, an heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So that your prayer... See, I said there's a bleed over into your spiritual life. No, it's, it is your spiritual life is directly impacted by how you treat your wife. And how you treat your wife is directly impacted by your spiritual life. And so there's this very tight relationship that God is showing us through the Apostle Peter with how we relate to God and how we relate to our wives. Don't get the two confused. I've known men that worship their wives. But if I treat her wrongly, I'm out of fellowship with God. He's not listening to my prayers. He's not interested in what I have to say to him. And so there's no hope of my prayers being answered. But if I'm right with her, then he is satisfied with me on that account. And he is willing to hear me. There's a very important message when you start saying, I'm not listening, when God starts saying, I'm not listening to you, we better take note. So we have to be gentle. And this is the gentleman verse of First uh, Peter, of, of the Bible. The, the gentleman verse that explains the chivalry idea of the knight who, you know, who puts himself out to provide for the woman instead of, of, of running roughshod over her. The knight who puts on armor to defend her honor instead of who uses his strength to dishonor her. This whole thing in Western Civ came from this idea that we would recognize the difference of womanhood and we would honor it, we would cherish it, we would preserve it, and we would uh, praise God for it. And so you have 17 rules to think through. A couple of them, over, a couple of them are repeats because I think it's important to, to say it twice. But uh, my challenge is to pray on these things and uh, let the Lord do his work in transformation for he is constantly transforming us father we thank you for the privilege to know you to think your thoughts about your institution of marriage of the institution of human volition of the responsibilities you've placed on all of our shoulders and i pray for all the men here tonight some of their heads are spinning some of their hearts are broken all of us are convicted that we haven't lived out the character of christ toward our wives as we should but we've been challenged tonight to do so. You've empowered us by your spirit to do so. And I pray for every man here, we would become capable communicators of your grace to the women you've given us. 
Pray for these young people that are not yet married, that the men, the young men, would consider the high calling that you've, you've called them to be heads of their, of their wives in the future, that they would take that to heart and become very serious and diligent students of your word so that they would uh, be careful to, to carry out that duty righteously and carefully and, and um, with, with vigor. And I pray for the young women that are not yet married. They would be um, challenged by the, the portrait that you've painted here of what to expect. High expectations with broken human beings, broken sinful people who yet, despite our sinfulness, make our commitments. We orient our lives on your word. We submit to you. We say, let God, you have your way and you've told us what it is here in the word. Father, provide all of our young people, men and women, husbands and wives, of high Christian character with lifelong commitments to a radical dependence on you through the word. Strong, careful students of your word who are willing to live out what you've said. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.